Fire Island is best understood as really a glorified sandbar. It's about 31 miles long, a few miles off the south shore of Long Island. From almost every point, you can see the bay and the ocean, and there are no cars. Here was this charming little place with no bicycles, nothing of the sort, just a boardwalk. It's a very unique place, especially for a place that's only 50 miles from New York City. It's just this expanse of water. It's very clear. The sky is clear. Also, the stars at night on Fire Island, because there's also no ambient light, are really much more brilliant. It's like being in the mountains, in the woods somewhere. It was declared a nature preserve in 1964, but the communities that had already dotted across its length were allowed to remain. The community is very small. The houses are very close together. They're mostly back to the 1920s and 1930s. Fire Island developed as a series of really separate enclaves, and it was basically different demographic slivers that created small communities, mostly people coming out of New York City, although, of course, some from Long Island as well. And you have a very waspy social register type community. You had more sort of scrappy beach communities, you know, with a kind of a vibrant bar scene, young people just flopping into a lot of houses. You had more sedate sort of communities. As a child growing up, Fire Island was a forbidden zone because that was where all the fairies went, so to speak. And even though Fire Island is miles long and there are 17 communities there, People associated it with just the gay population. The reputation by 1974 was for a major, major gay playground and a place where everything went and that was very free. You know, you could party there, it was dancing, it was lots of men, lots of sex. If you wanted to be with other gay people and in a safe environment, there was no place else to go in the world. Fire Island has two neighboring gay communities, Cherry Grove and the Fire Island Pines. Cherry Grove is the older and more bohemian of the two, while the Pines tends to attract a more refined and style-conscious crowd. In spite of their differences, the two communities thrived in the halcyon days of the 1970s. In 1979, we're at the end of the 70s. Fire Island and Cherry Grove and the Pines have become something much more visible to the general population. But for us little gay boys and little gay girls, going to Fire Island and going to Cherry Grove was like going to heaven. The Grove and the Pines had just come through the 1970s, which was an amazing decade, a total high. People were throwing these spectacular parties, and the whole conflation of sexual liberation with liberation period for gay men was at its height in the 70s. The best dance floors were always, always, always in gay places, from Studio 54 to the Monster in Cherry Grove. The DJs were hot, the bodies were hot, and we had a great time. It was just one big party after another. The uh, 
dance clubs would stop serving at four in the morning, but they would continue to stay open, and you'd be there until dawn. After dawn. It wasn't like today where possibly it goes on till 4 a.m. or 3 a.m. It was an all-nighter. You went out to the Ice Palace, and you just danced your little ass off all night long. There were no restrictions. There were no rules. There wasn't anybody there that you had to look over your shoulder. The Grove and the Pines were these magical, wonderful places where they could have all the sex they wanted and the cops weren't bothering people as they had in earlier times. It was just a a free-falling place. I don't know how else to explain it, as well as being, you know, a great beach. I've not said anything about the beach, which is, (laughs) oddly enough, why we supposedly why we all go to Fire Island. I can remember walking out onto the beach in Cherry Grove and seeing a thousand guys walking back to the pines into the early morning sunlight, and it was quite a sight. Very beautiful. It was 4th of July weekend, 1981, when a single column story on page 20 of the July 3rd edition of the New York Times appeared with the headline, Rare Cancer Seen in 41 Homosexuals. The article described a, quote, rare and often rapidly fatal form of cancer known as Kaposi's sarcoma with New York City as the implied epicenter of the outbreak. The Times was still giving problems about reporting on gay people, using the word homosexual and all that, but I read the article and I was horrified. And I hoped, and everybody around me hoped, that it was just a fluke. When that article came out, it sort of validated what many of us were already talking about. It was called GRID at the time, gay-related immune deficiency, as if gay people were only the people that were ever going to get sick from something. Never has an acronym caused anybody more trouble than GRID. You know, if it had been idiopathic immune deficiency disorder or immune deficiency disorder of of unknown origin, fine, people would have researched it. But to call it gay-related immune disorder... That's it. That was just curtains for anybody taking it seriously. It's so difficult now for people, even young gay people, to understand how terrifying this was. At first, no one knew what caused it. They were blaming it on things like poppers. They were blaming it on drugs. Is it semen itself, which was one rumor being floated? It's certain kinds of lubricant. People were saying that it was airborne, that it was mosquito-borne, that you could get it from swimming in a pool with someone who was infected. They were blaming it on anything they could think of in terms of blaming the people who had it. These were the people who didn't have it. And they would say, well, that's because he stayed out all night and he took poppers, he took drugs, and so on. And then the next thing you know, these very people who were putting down their gay companions discovered they had it too. And it grew from there. Already people were having the experience of knowing people who were developing strange symptoms. People were beginning to have, you know, wasting diseases and starting to have these unusual infectious diseases. The problem with all that was, you know, that the disease was much more widespread by that time, but people didn't know it. And nobody knew anything about long-term survival and there was no effective treatment and so on. And everyone assumed that you might live a few years at best. Um, and that we would all be looking at sort of the same fate. But it was all, uh, you know, dancing in the dark, sort of. I 
Almost immediately, a wedge formed between the neighboring communities of Cherry Grove and the Pines in their response to the outbreak. In the Pines, my sense is that the community was much more proactive, that pretty early on, there was more facing it head-on, more community mobilization. There were people who were being very vocal about, this is an emergency, this is really major, don't ignore this, it's going to cost you your life. And some of those people were called Cassandras, but you know, the problem is, Cassandra was right. And that's exactly what happened. People in the Grove at first just tried to pretend it wasn't happening. It just nobody wanted to hear about it. It was so frightening that people just hid in their houses and wouldn't even admit that they were sick. But what to do about it uh, and how to talk about it, it sort of ran counter to what Fire Island meant to people. Fire Island had meant celebration, had meant freedom, had meant sexual adventure, had meant a lot of things that were now suddenly being challenged. A lot of people would not admit they were sick. They didn't even want to admit to themselves they were sick. For example, I had one interviewee who was constantly sick and had these high fevers and stuff. And every time I would meet him, he would say, I have an advanced case of Lyme disease. You know, well, it wasn't. But he didn't want to tell me or anyone. When you have a sort of group grief situation going on and a group denial at the same time and a group reality. All those things intersecting all the time, it really depended on the character of who you were talking to. There was no consciousness about, oh, we're doing too many drugs, or we're doing this, or we're doing that. So a lot of people just self-medicated themselves through the whole crisis on Fire Island. In terms of the sexual behavior, I just, so much of that behavior is driven by unconscious motivation and by, then again, fueled by drugs and alcohol, that people don't aren't making rational decisions. And in fact, might be, if they're very, very fearful or have the notion that they're looking death in the face, they're more, even yet more likely to act out and uh, to do something that at some level might be life-affirming, like having sex with lots of people or something like that. We all were aware that things were starting to happen, but I still think people had their heads in the sand and didn't want to face what was going on. So you go to Fire Island, the place where we escape from the world, and a lot of people escape from that reality as well. Sadly enough, not for long. Nineteen eighty-four was at the beginning of the worst period in the Grove and the Pines. For me, Fire Island became ghostly. Like I would go there and I would see ghosts walking up and down the boardwalk, and I would walk by somebody's house and go, "Oh, that's where so and so lives." And I went to that wonderful party that he threw, and or you know, all the memories come rushing back. You could not not feel sad when you were walking down the boardwalk and you saw somebody that you had seen in New York City the year before who was totally vital and now they were walking down the boardwalk with an IV pole rattling behind them. You'd see someone or you'd hear someone and this got worse and worse and worse as the years went on, you know, where you couldn't deny. When you'd see some young person that you maybe had sex with last year or, or knew their boyfriend in a wheelchair with sarcosis sarcoma all over them and they were less than 30 years of age, 
you would go to somebody's house one day and you would go to their house the next weekend and find out they were dead. People were dying. I mean, you'd have four or five funerals a week. It was just horrible. You never even had time to grieve for one person before someone else had died. And it could have been an old boyfriend or it could have been someone you didn't like or someone you had a fight with. And then all those unresolved feelings were, you know, being stuffed down. A lot of the memories I just don't want to remember. I don't want to remember the people dying out there when there were no doctors to support them. You know, it's not really the island where there's great medical care. You know, it's sort of like going camping. So if you're going out there and you need a lot of support, you don't have much luck. You had to take the ferry. There was no other way to get out there. And you'd see the people getting on the ferry that maybe were hidden in the houses that weren't out on the beach. You know, you'd see them in different stages of dying. And at one point, people didn't want to go to Cherry Grove or the Pines anymore. When I first started going out to Fire Island, one of the most exciting things for me was to experience the meat rack because I had heard all this stuff about, you know, this wild anonymous sex place with all this stuff. And I was so excited. So when I got out there, I went for a walk and there was no one there. There was no one there. And I walked through and... I couldn't figure it out because I saw these piles of ashes. And I still really didn't connect the two. Like, there wasn't this immediate connection. And then finally, I stumbled across this pile of ashes, like, up on the hill. And there was a note. And it said, like, in memory of Joe, who wanted his ashes scattered at this spot, because this is where he met Henry. And in hindsight, when I look back, there were so many ashes that it was harrowing. We would carry urns of ashes and dump them in the ocean, and we would sprinkle them in the, through the meat rack, and we would bring them all, you know, any place that was a favorite haunt of a particular friend, we would spread a little bit of his ashes around. You know, all the gay people wanted to die on Fire Island. They had such great memories of it. It was sort of like they wanted to go back to the motherland, like a pilgrimage back to times that were better and happier and freer. As the death toll continued to rise, Fire Islanders described the sea change that occurred as they transitioned from being lovers to caretakers. I think it was really becoming, at that point, part of life during 85 and 86. That is when we realized this was going to be a part of our community, God knows for how long, and we had better accept it and start doing something about it. You became concerned for one another in a way that the party years of the 70s didn't show that at all. When it got to the mid-80s, there was a lot of community concern about one's friends and neighbors. I and lots of my friends were very much a part of that process of caring for people, providing for people, helping people at the end. You know, unless you've changed one of your friend's diapers, you don't know what true intimacy is. You had to sort of just forget about what your conceptions were about friendship and relationships, and it was time to roll up your sleeves and get serious about it. I think people became more compassionate. I think that was where we learned how to deal with each other in a non-sexual way, where you know, sexualizing each other was not what we needed to be doing to each other at that time. 
what we needed to be doing was supporting each other and loving each other. People began to be more reflective about who they were and what was important to them in their life. When you're facing death, one of the things that can happen is that you do take control of it and become, who am I? What do I want to do if I'm an artist or a painter or a writer or a singer or an actor or a carpenter or whatever? Well, maybe I don't have much time left, so I'm going to try to do that. So there was that flourishing. We finally got to a point where we started looking at each other in a completely different light. And I think it just grew from that point on. And I think that was a big leap. That was a big psychic change for gay men. At the same time that gay men were undergoing this psychic change, the first government-approved treatment for HIV and AIDS was introduced, an antiviral drug called azitathymidine, or AZT. The drug was patented in 1985 and rushed through approval by the Food and Drug Administration in March of 1987. The advent of things like AZT for treating, at least trying to treat, the primary infection, the HIV itself, and supportive treatments that were helping people last longer seemed to be a reduction in incidence because people now knew it was a virus, knew how it was spread, were much more serious about taking precautions and were optimistic that at least, you know, it's going to take a long time for this to actually be conquered, but we can control it. People became very, very aware of medications. You go out to dinner with somebody and he'd lay out 12 pills on the table next to his plate. And you already knew that this friend was positive. It finally got down to one pill. And as people became more public about it, other people became more accepting of the fact that we have sick people in the community and yet they're still our friends. They're still part of our community, they're part of our social fabric. And what we could see is that it worked. And I think that's when it started to change. In my household, we lost seven people over the period of five years. And we had another housemate who was very sick and looked like they were about to pass. And they were lucky enough to survive to get the cocktail. And within a year, they looked like their own self. I mean, they certainly still had HIV and still had complications and were still dealing with things. But the change in the physical appearance was absolutely dramatic. And I think that was a period of time where there, maybe you couldn't put a finger on it, but there was a lot of hope that it was coming to an end or that there was an end in sight because we could see people getting better and not dying. I mean, people were still dying, don't get me wrong, but there was still that sense of hope that there were people getting better. I think that optimism began in the late 80s and people began to come to the pines again. People were less afraid. You had an idea of what you could do to protect yourself. You could go and have a great time. If you didn't do X, Y, and Z, chances are you were going to leave having had a great time and not carry anything else away with you. And you had people that really were aware of how to be openly gay and sexual in the midst of an epidemic. And I think it became more possible to look at Cherry Grove and look at Fire Island, not as a reflection of the old culture, but a reflection of, you know, liberation culture, of which how we treat ourselves and our health was very much a part of it. The success of highly active antiretroviral therapies in recent years 
has led to a drastic change in the popular perception of HIV and AIDS. Younger generations of gay men often speak of HIV infection as a serious but manageable condition akin to diabetes. But those who lived through the early years of the AIDS crisis find this attitude impossible to reconcile with their own. It's very, very painful for people of my generation to talk about it because there's such unresolved grief that still exists. I think that many of us suffer from post-traumatic stress syndrome for what we went through those years that we could never, ever talk about. And now people don't really want to talk about it. And you have to understand that the average gay man living in New York in the 1980s lost half of his friends. More New York City residents died of AIDS between 1981 and 1995 than all of the American soldiers killed in Vietnam. And like Vietnam, it has taken us a while, really, to come to terms with it. And enough time has now passed that a richer discussion can hopefully occur. The Fire Island of today is, in some ways, just as intimately tied to questions of gay identity and gay spirit as it was in the era before AIDS and HIV. But in an age when gay and lesbian people are making greater gains in America's civic life, these changes are reverberating on Fire Island as well. Fire Island today is different because gay culture is more accepted in the world. So before it was very ghettoized in a way because Fire Island was the only place you could go and hold your boyfriend's hand or kiss your boyfriend and people didn't stare or want to stab you. And because that has changed, it's just not as exciting to me as it used to be. Because before it felt like a real sort of a club, like it was the Studio 54 of the gay world, you know, like it was an honor or like a privilege to be able to go there and be accepted by that community. And the culture has changed, and I think so has Fire Island. At the very end of my book, I talk a lot about the interview I did with Vito Russo, who was a very important figure in New York gay life. And I was very struck in reviewing my book today for this interview, his talking about how he thought that eventually gay people would be accepted and would be able to enter the mainstream of American life. And what he was so concerned about was how can we enter the mainstream of American life? How can we be accepted and still keep what makes us different? And I think that's very much the question today. And I think that the AIDS crisis, ironically, as stigmatizing as it was, set in motion certain things that led to the mainstreaming and the acceptance, greater acceptance of gay and lesbian people. And I, like Vito, hope that we'll still be able to keep what makes us different. And the Grove is a big part of that, and so is the Pines. I think it's really important to not demonize sex, but to critique our behavior, a lot of it in reaction to oppression and to a culture that tells us we're bad and we should, you know, whatever. But I, I just will throw on the table that I do think that there's something very special about gay sensibility and gay spirit that uh, really enriches the culture and that if we lose that or deny it, then we are doing something very destructive to who we are. 
That's part of why Cherry Grove and Fire Island, wherever they are, wherever that sensibility, wherever that culture of freedom flows, and that's all over the world, I think that that's very special. The Fire Island that I know, the Cherry Grove that I know, can be whatever you want it to be. It's that magical. It's somewhere over the rainbow, Fire Island is. (laughs) 